Mark Cuban. Going against the norm and, and looking for people who had great ideas is, is really what I look for as opposed to individuals mentoring me. David Stern. Thank you. Those are very kind and generous words. I greatly appreciate them, and thanks for having me on. Jeannie Buss. Thank you for having me. What a nice turnout. It's good to see everybody. Chris Everett. It was very interesting. You asked great questions, so thank you very much, Brian. Damian Lillard. That was for Seattle. <laughs> <laughs> Maria Taylor. Oh, thanks, Brian. I appreciate it. And your preparation shows you. Tim Howard. Well, I appreciate you saying I look forward to catching up with you again soon. Just to name a few. Let's Welcome to Sports Business Radio. Now, here's Brian Berger. Well, thanks for joining us on this week's edition of Sports Business Radio. I hope you're doing well and staying safe. Another great guest for you today, someone that I'm very close with, Coach Paul Westhead, the only person to win both a WNBA and an NBA title. 1980 Lakers won the NBA title. 2007 Phoenix Mercury with Diana Taurasi won the WNBA title. Coach Paul Westhead is the architect of the system, which is the high-speed, up-tempo offense that you see many teams playing today, including the Houston Rockets and Golden State Warriors. This is 90 minutes of gold stories about Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Magic Johnson. Coach Westhead and I got to know each other when he was at Loyola Marymount as their head coach. I was one of the radio voices of that team. We'll also talk about that special Loyola Marymount team that, by the way, averaged 122 points per game, a record that still stands to this day. Uh, the death of Hank Gathers, Coach Westhead handled that so beautifully and got everyone through it so gracefully. That was a really remarkable special team. I think you'll really enjoy this interview. And Brian Griggs, our producer, Coach Westhead is 81 years old. You'll hear how sharp he still is. And guess what? I helped him get on Twitter this week. So please, everyone out there, follow at Coach Westhead on Twitter. And uh, Coach Westhead has a book coming out in November, Speed of the Game. You'll be able to pre-order that if you visit his Twitter feed. But uh, just a great interview and a great conversation with someone I'm very close with, Griggs. Well, like you said, 90 minutes of solid gold, and it's just story after story. And it's one of those where just sit back in the rocking chair and have a listen for an hour and a half because it is just epic stuff. And 81, he doesn't sound 81, and he's still right on it. And we'll see how he does on Twitter. Yeah, it's going to be great to watch him on Twitter. But, you know, gosh, so many great stories. If you're a fan of old school basketball, and I'm 51 years old, so, I, you know, I remember the Lakers teams in the 80s and certainly – uh, the Loyola Marymount teams and, you know, I followed Coach Westhead's crew very closely after he left LMU. But I remember as a 12 year old when the Lakers won the 1980 championship against the Philadelphia 76ers and, you know, Magic Johnson played all five positions and that game was tape delayed and, you know, so many memories and, and Coach Westhead was, you know, at the helm of that team. So some classic stories coming up in the 90 minutes ahead. Griggs, uh, you know, again, this was one I was hoping to do in person. I saw Coach Westhead in Los Angeles on February 29th at the unveiling of the new Hank Gather statue at Loyola Marymount. But due to COVID, you know, I wanted to do this sooner than later and 90 minutes. But, you know, you and I could have gone to L.A., got some in and out, and, and I'm a little disappointed that we don't see Coach Westhead in person for this one. 
<laughs> yeah, always down for sitting in and out and heading to LA. But yeah, you know, either way, in, in person or not in person, it is awesome. A great listen, great stories, brilliant guy, and uh, a mastermind of coaching basketball. So it's a fun one. All right, one of the best coaches ever, Coach Paul Westhead. Ninety minutes of gold ahead. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. Hey everyone, I'm thrilled to tell you about a new Sports Business Radio partner who's going to help you and whose products have been life-changing for me and my family. CBDMD is now the official CBD partner of Sports Business Radio. Many people use CBD products as a regular part of their health and wellness routines, but only the best use superior products from CBDMD. CBDMD has a wide variety of CBD oil products ranging from classic CBD oil tinctures to topicals, gummies, heck, they even have CBD for your pets. From NFL veterans like Nate Burleson and future Hall of Famer Steve Smith Sr. to two-time Masters champion Bubba Watson, CBDMD is tested and trusted by people who know pain. And the best part? All CBDMD products are THC-free. That was important for me. Third-party tested and backed by a 60-day money-back guarantee so there's no risk. Look, these are anxious times for many of us right now. We're not sleeping nearly as well. I tried CBDMD's award-winning CBD PM drops, and I now sleep through the night. My daughter loves CBDMD's Revive Moisturizing Lotion and the CBDMD Freeze Pain Roller for her aches and pains from playing sports. And our dog loves the CBDMD Soft Chews. And because the products are all THC-free, CBDMD is safe for our family. Dozens of companies have sent me CBD product to try over the years, but none come close to the superior quality of CBDMD. Sleep better, relieve your aches and pains, give your pets treats that they will love. And to make it even easier to see what CBD can do for you, CBDMD is offering all of our listeners 25% off your order when you use the promo code SBR at checkout. Once again, go to cbdmd.com and use promo code SBR at checkout to save 25% on your purchase of superior CBD oil products from CBDMD. Again, cbdmd.com. Use the promo code SBR at checkout and save 25%. Thank me later. My guest is Paul Westhead. He is the only head coach to win both an NBA championship with the Los Angeles Lakers in 1980 and a WNBA title with the Phoenix Mercury in 2007. He and I got to know each other when he led Loyola Marymount University to the Great Eight in 1990, record-setting offense that averaged 122 points per game and featured Bo Kimball and the late Hank Gathers. I was one of the radio voices of that team. He is the subject of the ESPN 30 for 30 documentary, Guru of Go, and he has a new book coming out, Speed of the Game. It comes out in November. It is my pleasure to welcome Coach Paul Westhead to Sports Business Radio. Coach, how are you? I'm fine, Brian. It's nice being, being here with you. Yeah, we saw each other February 29th at the Hank Gather statue unveil at Loyola Marymount, and I had hoped to sit down with you in person to do this interview, but... Given the pandemic that we're in, we decided it would probably be safest to to have this conversation via phone because I wanted to do it sooner than later. Let's start with the beginning of your life. You were born in Philadelphia. What was it like growing up in the Westhead household? 
Well, you know, I, I grew up uh, in the heart of the city uh, as a very young boy. I grew up in South Philadelphia, which uh, my memories are kind of vague about that. But then we moved to West Philadelphia, and I went to grade school there, and I uh, lived in a row house, and, uh, uh, you know, classroom size 60, 70, 80, 90 in a classroom. Um Sports activities, uh, you played on the street. You played stick ball and, and half ball and uh, hose ball, uh, any kind of thing. But uh, there was no organized games or events or teams or little league at that time. So you were kind of on your own to, to kind of uh, work through your uh, desire to, to play sports. Who was your first basketball influence? Who, who introduced you to basketball? How did you gravitate to that? Yeah, well, my, my first influence probably was, you know, my, I had an older brother who was five years older than me and he, uh, had uh, polio. So he was not an athlete. So he would take me with his, uh, his buddies, uh, five years, my senior. And, uh, they took me to the basketball courts and worked me over a little bit. And, uh, surprisingly, when I was a young boy, I had a decent shot. And uh, so they, they used me to, to shoot the ball, but. That that soon left me, and uh, as I went through my high school, college career, shooting was not my expertise. I was a a defensive uh, demon, uh, unlike my own team. So it's kind of ironic that when I decided to start coaching and I got into the college ranks, uh, I kind of put aside the the defensive world and, and, and stressed offense. Definitely stressed offense. Like I said before, Loyola Marymount, when we were together, 122 points per game. You created something called the system. What's the backstory on the system? How did you come up with that offense that was up-tempo and, you know, frankly, Coach, is used routinely today. If you look at how the Houston Rockets or the Golden State Warriors play, they're using a, a version of the system. Yeah, well, uh, I was uh, the head coach uh, back in Philadelphia of LaSalle University. I was there in the 70s, from 1970 through to 79. And during those years, uh, two things happened to create this system. One, I, I became friendly with a coach called Sonny Allen, who was at Old Dominion University then. And he... Talked to me about his fast break system, and I, I spent some time with him, and he showed me the simplicity of it. He said it's really simple. He said, "But I have to tell you, you have to be a little crazy to do this." <laughs> so I said, "Well, uh, I'm a little crazy." So uh, he he kind of brought me in, and then the second thing that happened during those years, uh, each summer I would go to San Juan, Puerto Rico, and coach in the the summer leagues down there, along with a number of other college coaches. Uh, uh, Phil Jackson was down there. Uh, Del Harris was down there. And originally, Jack Ramsey and Red Holtzman were down there coaching. So it was a hotbed of coaches. I tell you this because during those summers, it gave me a chance to experiment with things, things I might not ever do with my college team because I didn't know enough. I would practice, for example, my fast break in Puerto Rico. So when I come back in the winter, 
uh, I was much more confident in what to do and what not to do. And therefore, the, the, the fast break in, in the mid-70s, uh, for me, uh, was born. When you're describing the system to someone, what's the best way to describe it? Because some people listening to this right now might go, okay, it's up-tempo, but what is it specifically? Well, specifically, it's very exact. Uh, uh, upon possession, uh, you know, you're, you get it one of two ways. You either get it on a missed shot or a make shot. Uh, on a made shot, uh, we have a designated player, uh, what we call our five-man, takes the ball out all the time. No one else takes the ball out except the five. And he's going to outlet the ball as quickly as possible to our point guard who is streaking down the court. He never comes back to the ball. He's going down the court. And he's going to receive the ball a little bit on the right side, uh, hopefully uh, five feet shy of half court. So he's he's on the move. And as he's doing that, uh, we have a player running the right wing, a player running the left wing, and another player, the fourth player, running right down the middle of the court. So as our point guard catches the ball, he turns, and he's going to explode with his dribble. He's going to go as fast as he can, and he's going to pass to any one of his teammates who are open. So it's pass for a score. So if, if he passes you the ball... There's a message on it. Shoot. So we, we, we don't have an elaborate offense. Uh, if you catch the ball, that meant that you were instructed to shoot. So our players uh, were always happy to receive the ball and shoot. When you first sat down with Hank Gathers and Bo Kimball, who were transferring from USC to Loyola Marymount, I've heard the story that you showed them a tape of the system and they thought that you had intentionally sped up the tape and they were like, come on coach, this can't be real. Take me into that first meeting with Hank and Bo when they were talking to you about coming to play for Loyola Marymount. Well, uh, they came for a, you know, a day visit and we did a number of things uh, that you normally do with, with recruits or people who are interested. We took them over to uh the campus over to the administration area. Uh, they met with the, the, the academic dean, uh, who was then Father Capers. Uh, and I remember being in there, and uh, he looked at their records and said, "Oh, I see you. Uh, uh, you took Russian in your freshman year." And they nodded, and uh, Bo was about to start elaborating on how he was good at rushing. And, and Hank put his arm on him like, you know, J just shut up. <laughs> so uh, that got by okay. I mean, they, they, they were very respectful and, uh, and the conversation went well. So then they came back to me. And you're, you're correct. I showed them about five minutes of a game film. And... They didn't say anything, so we walked outside. They were getting ready to leave, and, and uh, Bo said to me, uh, Coach, you're from Philly. We're from Philly. Don't bullshit us now. Uh, you, you messed with that tape. I said, no, I didn't. It was just five minutes of a game. You know, it's it it the raw game, no change. I said, well, if you're telling the truth and we believe you because you're a Philly guy, we're coming. 
So that's what changed them from, you know, looking around at other universities. They said, if you're going to play this fast, uh, we're in. Wow. Yeah. And, and, you know, when I think back, the two of them and Jeff Fryer for sure, because he was such a, a great prolific shooter, seemed to be like just perfect for the system. When you watch today's game or even, you know, let's say the last 20 years, are there certain players that you look at and go, wow, that person would have been perfect for the system? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I see them, uh, you know, the, seem to come and go. It's really hard to pick them out, Brian, because uh, if they're not surrounded by others running with them, it's hard to, you know, to separate. Uh, uh, but I, I, I did have many stories uh, over the years. I, I remember I was at a uh, an NBA All-Star game years ago, and just by coincidence, I run into John Havlicek, and we're chatting a little bit, and he says to me, Coach, if I had played for you, man, I, I'd have been a great player. I said, John, you were a great player without me, so don't worry about that. But there are a lot of people who I meet over the years who say, I saw how you played, and I'd love to play in that system. Look how many shots I would get. Look how much I would score. Uh, so, yeah, yeah, there's there's a lot of players out there who probably would have fit. Uh, and there's some players who, uh, you know, they, they were so good, it probably didn't matter. Uh, Michael Jordan, for example. I mean, he could play in my system, and he could not play in my system, and he's still going to win. You coached two of the greatest point guards, maybe the two greatest point guards of all time, in Magic Johnson and Diana Taurasi with the Phoenix Mercury. I look at them and, and how they ran your, your system. Was that kind of the peak of how the system could be run? Uh, kind of yes and no. Um, it's interesting you, you bring both of them up because they, they do have sh- striking similarities. Uh, uh, they both are, you know, in the upper one, two percent of talent and ability in, in all of basketball. Uh, Magic's probably going to be in the top five of anybody's list on the men's side. And certainly Diana Taurasi will be in the top five on the women's side, perhaps if not first. And they had such talent. It's, it's kind of ironic that you single them out. They both were not classic system players, um, partially because they were so skilled and so talented that they wanted to and they were able to do multiple things. I'm better off having players who are a little more single-minded, uh, for example, uh, maybe my one of my best point guards ever was Corey Gaines with my LMU team. Mm-hmm. Corey was six four, and he could race that ball faster than a speeding bullet. So he he had he had more speed, for example, than Magic Johnson. Uh, so uh, it, it's kind of an interesting spin uh, that you bring them up because they could run the break and be successful. And their team could win, and they could not run the big break and be successful, and their team could win. Uh, Diana Taurasi, you know, could turn it on and turn it off. And, and sometimes players are smarter than you and your system, and they, they can control the pace, uh, which 
helps you win, but it wasn't exactly the speed game that I needed. In Phoenix, I finally, we finally won moving to Rossi over to the two spot where she was spectacular. And I had a young woman uh, named Kelly Miller uh, who played at the University of Georgia. And she came and she ran that ball like, like nobody's business, like Corey Gaines did. And in Magic's position, as you know, Magic played every position. Uh, you know, like in our championship game, he played center because Kareem was injured. He played power forward. He played, you know, uh, wingman. And he was a point guard. So the two of them were great players for me, but ironically not the perfect system players, uh, although uh, I was smart enough to put up with them. <laughs> Do you ever look at today's game again, Houston Rockets and and Golden State Warriors, and say, you know what, maybe the system was like twenty years too early? Do you ever Do you ever have those thoughts? Uh, yeah, I, I might look around, and it's funny you bring up Houston because uh, uh, Mike D'Antoni and I knew each other, and we do have a connect that both of us. Uh, were trained a little bit by Sonny Allen, uh, because Sonny Allen was from the West Virginia area where D'Antoni's family, uh, came from. Uh, and then, uh, D'Antoni and I, uh, re-met again in Phoenix because when I was with the Mercury, he was with the, the Phoenix Suns at that time. So we would, uh, I'd go to his practice, he'd come to my practice, he came to, came to our games. So we became friendly there. And I was amazed at how well he ran the ball. Uh, of course, he has Steve Nash and Amari Stoudemire then, which is a great combo for a, for a fast break team. Uh, but to be honest with you, Brian, looking at the Houston team now, I don't see a lot of running. Uh, not the way that D'Antoni did in Phoenix and not the way that, you know, we did in with the Mercury or with LMU. So he's kind of adjusted uh, his game pattern to his players. And uh, uh, they're, they're doing well, and I think Mike does a great job, but I, they, they're not a model of fast-break basketball anymore. That, that's kind of been uh, pushed aside a little bit. So, you know, a lot of people say, well, gosh, they score a lot of points. They take a ton of threes. Yep. That's not running. It's just shooting more threes. Yeah. I, it's just a different style. I mean, uh, D'Antoni hasn't abandoned everything. He, he doesn't want, you know, to run a pattern offense that you, you almost exhaust the shot clock and then somebody finally is open and shoots. You know, he, he's encouraging the quick shot. He's encouraging the deep shot, uh, so that it gives the semblance of fast break because you score a lot. But uh, it, it, the real concept of the, my system, the speed game, is to push the ball faster than the defense can get back. And so if you can get down in three seconds ahead of the defense, that's exactly what we want. So, you know, we would like the ball to be shot within five seconds. Uh, and it really didn't matter to me whether it was a deep three or a driving layup or, a, you know, a 10-foot jump shot. It was just the quickness of the shot, not so much the, the location of the shot. The other thing that I always thought was very underrated about the system 
you know, I remember when I was at Loyola Marymount and I would talk to the guys, you had them running sand dunes on the beach. They were the best conditioned basketball team, maybe pro or college. And a lot of teams playing the system style when they were suckered into it, they would just run out of gas in the second half. And because Loyola Marymount was physically fit, they ran them off the court. I mean, to me, Coach Westhead, the, the epitome of the system was the Michigan game when Michigan kept it close in the 1990 NCAA tournament. And then LMU ends up winning by 34 points after pulling away in the second half. And, and you know, they baited Michigan into the style of game, which was basically shooting threes for twos. And then Michigan ran out of gas. Yeah. Uh, if you're going to pick a game, you know, that certainly would be an example. Uh, they were ultra talented team. I think three or four of their players uh, were uh, first round draft choices in the NBA. Um, they were uh, advised uh, by uh, Steve Fisher, and who became a friend of mine years later, and now I see him almost every summer. And he said to them, don't get caught in a running game with this team. You know, uh, we're going to win, but you, you don't want to run with them because that's what they do. And he's, upon reflection, he said they heard him, but they didn't believe him. They felt that they were talented enough that if anyone wants to play fast, they could overcome that. Well, by halftime, uh, our players knew it was over uh, because we had them exactly where the, we wanted them. They were they played fast. They made shots. We played fast. We made shots. Now, all of a sudden, can you do it for 40 minutes? And uh, at that moment, we were the only team probably, probably in the USA that could do it for 40 minutes. So teams would begin to break down and once that starts, uh, it's it's just a matter of uh, how much you're going to win by. Uh, and, and it's interesting. Uh, years later, I in, in being with Steve, uh, he uh, he still reflected on that game. He said, I, "My guys said just wouldn't slow down enough, and and you caught them." Uh, and as, as recent as a year ago, I went to a banquet in San Diego at. Or MLS and Steve's son uh, has MLS uh, and, he, and he was at the table next to me so I said you know I had to go over and, and, and you know say hello so he, his son is in a wheelchair and, and and I went over and I said hi I'm, I'm coach Westhead and, and he said to me he said I know who you are and he said the last time I saw you I was crying, and I looked at him. He said, I was at the game where you beat my father. (laughs) (laughs) For the first time, by the way, in the tournament. Yes, I know. That was their first loss. So, uh, I mean, what a delightful young man, though. I I was a little nervous, you know, to say the right thing. Right. And he he just broke me down, and, you know, we were laughing together. But he said, yeah. I said, well... uh, uh, I appreciate your comment, but he, he was trying to protect his dad. Yeah, that's funny. Let's go backwards for a minute. So your okay. your first head coaching job uh, in college is at LaSalle in Philadelphia. You attended St. Joe's. Um, and then 
you become the head coach of the Lakers and you get the job because Jack McKinney, who's the head coach, was in a terrible bike accident. Walk me through like how that all took place because, you know, I remember being a kid and obviously I had heard of you, but all of a sudden, like you're, you're coaching Magic and Kareem and Norm Nixon and Jamal Wilkes and Jack McKinney was, uh, you know, injured in that, in that accident. It's probably not the way that you had seen your, your first head coaching job, uh, in the NBA come to fruition. Yeah. Well, I, um, uh, I was at LaSalle for, uh, for nine years. Uh, Jack and I were friends because we both went to St. Joseph's. Uh, I was an assistant before my head coaching job at LaSalle with Jack McKinney at St. Joe's for two years. So we kind of were uh, basketball friends and, and personal friends, so we knew one another. Uh, he got the offer to come to the Lakers. He was an assistant with the Portland Trailblazers. Uh, with Jack Ramsey, who was our coach. Uh, it's like the cycle of life here. And uh, when McKinney got the job, uh, hired by Jerry Buss, uh, he called me. Uh, I was at LaSalle. He said, uh, I'd like you to be my assistant. Uh, I hesitated for about two seconds. I said, uh, I'm on the next plate. <laughs> so uh, that's how it started. And then early in the first year, uh, we had our had a day off, which was very uncharacteristic at that time. And Jack McKinney called me and said, you want to play tennis? I said, yeah. So I lived in a, a condo complex that had a tennis court. So he said, I'll come over. It's okay. So I go over to the court like about 10 a.m. And I'm sitting there waiting for him. And then it's 1030. Then it's 11 o'clock. And, of course, this is before cell phones. So... I just assumed that something came up and somebody at the Laker office called him in to, to talk about something. And I didn't have a phone. He didn't have a phone with us. So hours later, his wife called and said uh, they found Jack uh, at a little company, a Mary Hospital, and uh, he had an accident and he was unconscious and uh, they didn't even know who he was. His wife kind of scoured the hospitals and, and found him. Wow. So uh, picking up that story with him unconscious, the next day we have a game. We have a shoot-around like at 10 o'clock in the morning. So I go to the shoot-around. So I, I want to show you how the position is. I'm the only assistant coach. Back then you only had one assistant coach. So when I show up the shoot-around, if I don't show up, nobody shows up. Wow. Uh, so uh, it wasn't like they said, hey, let's give West said this job. He's really a good coach or he's this or he's that. They had no choice. <laughs> like, you know, I'm it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, you know, the players were obviously very sorrow, sorrowful and devastated. And uh, we kind of just stumbled through the shoot around. Uh, we played the game that night. I can still remember as if it was last night. Uh, uh, there's about a minute and a half to go and, and it looks like we're going to lose. And I'm saying to myself, well, we lose this game and this will be my last head coaching job. And Jamal Wilkes 
makes a spectacular fall away jump shot that he's noted for, and we win the game. Uh, and that just allowed me to be around for another couple of days. So that's how it went for almost two or three weeks. So they would say to me, well, coach the game tomorrow, and then we'll talk again. So uh, I think they were calculating, you know, what are we going to do? We don't know the status of Jack McKinney officially. We don't know who we can bring in. So they were kind of stuck in the middle, and I was the one in the middle. So one week led to two weeks, led to three weeks, and then, uh, you know, I remained for the rest of the season. Coach, take me inside that locker room when that happens because you've got Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, who most people thought was the best player in the league at that time. You've got rookie Magic Johnson, who, you know, comes with his own accolades. Jamal Wilkes, Norm Nixon. I mean, it's a strong locker room. It's a veteran team for the most part. It's not like, you know, you come in there and, and you're leading a bunch of young players. How did you kind of gain their respect and go from, you know, sitting in the assistant seat to the head coach seat and have them look at you as a head coach? Yeah, that's kind of interesting. I think a couple things work to my advantage, uh, some to my disadvantage, but certainly to my advantage is one, I had been a nine-year head coach veteran in college. So, I mean, for pure basketball, uh, I knew the deal. I mean, I knew what to do, how to do it, you know, how to present it. Uh, so I, I, that wasn't my flaw. Uh, the other thing I had going for me was that we were a month into the season and Jack McKinney had done a terrific job at setting up his system and his program and the players were very comfortable in it. So putting my coaching experience and his system together and just letting it go, you know, not trying to change too much, I think the players, for the most part, felt very comfortable. Uh, the one downside that eventually exposes itself is, as a college coach, you have no experience with players as professionals and their agents and all that goes with it. So I was making decisions that players and their agents eventually would not be happy with. And the agent would say, hey, well, he wants you to play defense. We want you to score points. So forget what he's telling you. Go out and score more points and I'll get you a better contract. So I didn't know that world. Hmm. So I, I was really behind the curve in how to deal with professional athletes and their agents and what it meant to them. But I was okay with on-court basketball concepts because that's what I I knew and I was pretty good at. Have you ever looked back? I mean, look, I, I spend almost every day looking back going, well, if I knew then what I know now, I probably would have done that differently. Do you ever look back and say, well, that 1980 season or the 81 season – Maybe I would have done some things differently if I knew then what I know now, or are you pretty comfortable with how you handled it? <laughs> yeah. Well, it's kind of interesting. The 80 season, I can look back. In fact, it's just, it's been 40 years this past May 8th or 10th, whatever the date was, 40 years ago that we won the championship in my hometown of Philadelphia against Julius Irving and company. 
So I don't think I'd have done anything different that year. I think I, I, I turned out pretty well. Reflect and say, hey, uh, I think I'll let that one go. Uh, subsequent to that, it's kind of interesting because uh, part of my reflections in some of my writings is, and uh, a, a writer, a beat writer for the L.A. Times, uh, Scott Osler, asked me this question uh, about a year ago. He said, Paul, uh, how come uh, you won a championship uh, Jerry Buss gave you the highest contract of a professional coach in the world. Uh, how come you then decided to change what you were doing and run your fast break different than what the team was doing when they won the championship? And I said, that's an interesting question, Scott. If I had the thought of it then, <laughs> I, I, I might not have done it. But uh, I did change. I did implement my fast break more and more and more. And some of the players uh, didn't accept it. Some of the agents didn't like what I was doing to their players or with their players. And therefore, to answer your question, uh, if I went back in time, if I just uh, kept the status quo, you know, heck, I might have been there for 10 years, but uh, I didn't. And uh, But you look at it this way, I never have made uh, LMU. If, if, That's right. If I, yeah, so there's always good news uh, from uh, bad news and getting fired. Yes. Philadelphia, you know, we just discussed. So you grew up in Philadelphia. You coached at LaSalle. You attended St. Joe's. It's been, it's amazing how many big moments in your life when I was researching you, I was like, wow, how ironic that you win that 1980 championship with the Lakers in Philadelphia. And, you know, I remember our trip in 1989 when Loyola Marymount played St. Joe's, Bo has the buzzer beater against St. Joe's, and then we play on national TV against Lionel Simmons and LaSalle where you had coached and, and beat them as well. Some really big moments in Philadelphia for you. Have you ever like stopped and paused and went, wow, Philly has been magic for me. Yeah. Uh, you, you triggered a couple of events that uh, have been spectacular for, for me. The, the, the championship at the, the Spectrum in Philadelphia, which, you know, uh, a year before I was uh, coaching at LaSalle and, you know, just in, and an average coach in, in the big five, you know, we had some success, but, you know, it wasn't like I was uh, sticking out above uh, everyone else in, in the city. You know, I mean, people probably knew of me, but nothing to write home about. He was just an, another coach. And here I am uh, a year later uh, coaching against the, their, their charms, Sixer team and winning. Uh, it's kind of interesting uh, with this 40-year anniversary, they, uh, uh, the L.A. Times interviewed Jeannie Buss, and she said uh, about that event, she was like a teenage girl, maybe about 18 years old then. She said her father said, uh, you don't need to come to Philadelphia for Game 6 uh, because we're probably coming back to play Game 7 in two days anyway. Uh, and he, his reflection was, uh, Kareem was injured and didn't make the trip, so... 95% of the world thought that 
you know, we would lose game six and return for the final game. So Jeannie Buss stayed home. Uh, ironically, uh, the same thing happened with in my family, and I said to my wife, well, honey, we're going back to Philly, so why don't you come on back? You know, you can see some of your friends and family. So I, I didn't promise her uh, a championship banner, but uh, I said, come on back, and you can see some, some of our friends. So she came back and made the flight and was at the game, and uh, the irony of all this is uh, I probably had a half a dozen tickets. She gave them away to family and friends, and she wound up uh, having to get a single ticket for herself. And she was sitting by herself, surrounded by Sixer fans. <laughs> and as the game goes on, she's being very quiet and demure. She doesn't want to play her hand at all. But with about a minute and a half to go, we made a basket, went up 10, I guess. And she jumped up and cheered. And they said, hey, who are you? (laughs) And she said, well, I'm the coach's wife. So the game ends, and 20 people around here stood up and applauded her. That's great. Which which you'd never see happen in Philadelphia. Never. So they knew that she was a Philly girl, and at least that was some consolation for for them. But uh, Philly fans are tough, but at that moment they were very gracious to her. That's a great story. I'm so glad that she went. You just, you never know. No, you never know. Before that game, so like you said, Kareem doesn't play. And, you know, the legend is Magic played all five positions. Was there any special kind of conversation with him before the game of, hey, Magic, I need you to play all five positions? Or did it kind of just organically happen? No, it was, uh, we're on the flight back from L.A. to, to Philadelphia. At that time, uh, you know, all the teams flew commercial, so no one had any of their private uh, planes or anything. Uh, and uh, Kareem always sat in the first row on the left-hand side. So when I got on the plane, some of the players were ahead of me, and Magic was sitting in the first row on the left-hand side. <laughs> and... Uh, he had already said something to other players that got on, but he just kind of nodded to me like, you know, uh, we're okay, coach. So during the flight, I talked to him and said, uh, I want you to play center for us in this game. And he looked at me and he said, hey, I have no problem. He said, you know, I played center in high school, which if you look back, it was like two years ago. <laughs> <laughs> he said, yeah, I got no problem. So we had a shoot around. We went through a couple of plays and, uh, you know, nothing was the problem with magic. It wasn't like, oh, well, why don't we go over this? I need to study this play. I mean, he did it instinctively. And, and in the game, uh, our first offensive possession, he goes into the low post. Uh, Nixon throws him the ball in the low post and he does a turnaround Scott hook and it goes in. And then from that moment on, he played wherever he wanted to play. I mean, he played in the post for Kareem, but he played outside. He played guard uh, and wound up with 42 points. Yeah, I mean, it's really remarkable because the way you put it, he was in high school, you know, not that far earlier than that game. And and he's in an NBA championship game, which, by the way, Coach, you know, in 1980, the games weren't even broadcast live. They were tape delayed. Yeah, I knew that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's crazy how far we've come now. If you said something was tape delayed, you'd be looked at like you were 
nuts. But, <laughs> you know, back then it was tape delayed. You had to wait for the game to come on. I remember, you know, I grew up in Arizona. I was waiting forever for those games. It was like 11 at night when they were coming on. I was begging my parents to let me stay up late enough to, to watch the game. So, so much has changed. But, you know, what a special night for you that night. What did you do uh, after the game to celebrate? Uh, after the game, where well, there was a uh, another couple that we had uh, spent time with when I was at LaSalle. They came to the game. Uh, we went back to the hotel, which was right by the airport, and, you know, the people like gathering around. It was kind of crowded, you know, of friends and family. So we went out to a local diner. Uh, <laughs> if you're from Philly, you know, everyone goes to the diner. So uh, we spent our celebration at a... It's called the Melrose Diner near the airport. We, we, you know, we had classic like cheesesteaks and scrapple and eggs and all the kinds of stuff that Philly people eat and just sat around and uh, that was our celebration, but it was fun. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back after this. Nearly 20 years ago, Boingo dreamed of a world where people could connect to the wireless internet anywhere with any device. Today, that dream is reality and Boingo has been at the forefront. Now more than ever, staying connected is what matters most. Boingo keeps people connected to the people and things they love with next-generation networks built for the 5G era. They are the largest operator of indoor wireless networks in the U.S., and they work with sports teams across the NFL, NBA, MLS, NCAA, and more. From 5G and CBRS to DAS and Wi-Fi, Boingo is a trusted partner for staying connected now and in the future. Our thanks to Boingo for their continued support of Sports Business Radio. Connectivity is more important than ever, and you can learn more by visiting boingo.com or emailing sbradio at boingo.com. That's sbradio at boingo.com. Now, back to Sports Business Radio with Brian Berger. I want to go back to Kareem for a minute. Uh, you know, again, when you had him, he was, he was, peak of his powers, Kareem. I mean, he was really, really good. Some people have said he's the most uh, gifted offensive basketball player who's ever played. And I think kids today, you know, they didn't see Kareem except for on YouTube and they don't realize how special he was, but maybe spend a, a couple minutes just reflecting on him. Yeah. Well, uh, I'll start with telling you what I, when McKinney, uh, offered me the job I flew in like two days later and I got out of the airport and they were having a practice uh at Inglewood High School that's that's you know there, there were no practice facilities, <laughs> <you know. laughs> we practiced at the wood I mean I'm we happy to have Inglewood High School uh and uh, I don't want to exaggerate this but sometimes Inglewood wasn't available and there was a, a an outdoor park across the street from Inglewood on Manchester that we'd go over there and go through some routines in the outdoor court. That's unbelievable. An NBA team practicing on an yeah. outdoor court. Yeah, with I think they had chain nets. Cause they, oh, they my gosh. And the players probably, like, today if you did that, players would revolt. But back oh, then they were probably yeah. just like, all right, well, I guess we got to go outdoors. They'd say, well, you go, you're gone, but we're not. Uh, so anyway, I, I walked show up in Inglewood, and uh, they just started uh, spreading out and doing different things. And McKinney says to me, hey, Kareem's down the other end. 
and I'm working down here with some of the guys with some defensive moves. Why don't you go down and just work with Kareem? So I walked down. I said, hi. He said, hi. Uh, and he was in the low post. So I got the ball, and I passed it to him, and he did a sky hook. So I passed it to him doing the same thing. He did 30 sky hooks. He made, I think he made all 30. He might have made 29 of them. Wow. And, and he turned to me. This took like five minutes. He said, that's enough. And I said, oh, okay. So I walked down to McKinney. I said, hell, this is easy, Jack. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that was my first introduction to Kareem. Uh, and I found out because I was kind of a basically a quiet guy. I was feeling my way that the one thing you did not want to do with Kareem Abdul-Jabbar was to try and impress him of how good or smart you were. That hmm. didn't work. So because I was just standing around and if you want me to pass your ball, I'll pass you the ball. But, but I wasn't going to say, hey, why don't you drop your foot a little bit more or something? You know, I, I didn't get clever with him. So we became friendly. And, and it's interesting. Kareem was friendly with his fellow players, but he did not uh, want to open up to the outside world at all. He, he was not friendly with fans or media. Uh, he kind of kept to himself. So if you had a friendship with Kareem that was not like other people, uh, and his ability, I'll just give you an example of his ability. Whatever he did in the regulation season, it got better in the playoffs. And if there's one thing about Kareem that stands out is that his incredible consistency. He, he never had bad games. It's never like he played a game and he had four points and two rebounds, and he said, oh, gee, I just didn't play well tonight. Uh, I remember uh, we were playing in the forum late in the season, and we always played on Sunday evening. Uh, they always had the Lakers play Sunday evening at home. And that morning... Uh, Jim Murray, the, the renowned uh, sports writer, uh, did an article uh, on Kareem, and he compared him to the, the, the play Carmen, to the opera Carmen. And his, his whole rendition of Carmen was that whoever's playing Carmen night in and night out Carmen is what is called for, and Carmen is what you get. So the the, the opera never changes. It's the same. Hmm. So we're on the bench, and they're introducing the teams for the starting lineup, and Kareem was always introduced last, so I wind up sitting next to him. And I turned to him, and I said, Hey, Cap, what's playing tonight? And he says to me, Carmen. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great story. Yeah. And out he went and he delivered. So that, if there's one thing about Kareem, I mean, he's a great scorer. I think he's the all-time leading scorer. He's a great rebounder. Uh, but you got it every night. Yeah. That's amazing. And, and like I said, just so offensively gifted and did it at every level, high school, was just a major stud at UCLA. And then when he got to the pros, he, he did it there too. And again, because today's young people, 
didn't see him, they don't know his greatness. But, you know, you, you talk to anyone who knows basketball over the last 50 years and, and he's got to be on the list of, uh, you know, greatest players ever. When you made that poster, I, I also, I had that poster of like you dressed up. Uh, as the professor and you've got yep. Kareem and Magic and Norm Nixon and Jamal Wilkes. What was that shoot like? That had to have been a fun couple of hours doing that photo shoot. Yeah, we, uh, they actually did it in a hotel across the street from the forum, uh, which, uh, was also was across the street to Hollywood Park, which now as you're probably aware, has all has all been torn down, and now they're uh, building a new uh, football arena that'll be ready. I I think next year or in two years. But anyway, uh, Sports Illustrated did that, and and to make things convenient for the players, since uh, the hotel was directly across the street, they went got a, a couple hotel rooms and brought uh, construction people in, and they made the classroom scene in the hotel. Wow. So that when we showed up, you know, the desk were there, the, the teacher's desk, the, uh, down to the apple on the desk and books and blackboards, that was all brought in. And I, I don't know what it cost them. It probably cost them thousands of dollars to set this up. And then the players came and uh, took about maybe 15 minutes to do that shoot, but uh, it took them two or three days to set it all up. Wow. Yeah, that must have been fun. And, and you know, again, uh, what a great memory for you and, and great time. So, all right, let's jump ahead to Loyola Marymount. Again, I've heard many versions of how you wound up as the head coach at Loyola Marymount, but let's hear directly from you. Because it's from what I've heard, it's a it's a kind of a funny story. It wasn't just like, "Hey, Coach Westhead, do you want to come coach at Loyola Marymount?" It, it had a few twists and turns to it. Yeah, it sure did. Uh, I had it's it's kind of interesting. I had applied to be the head coach of Loyola Marymount back in uh, the seventies. I uh, I'd be guessing and say seventy seven, seventy eight, one of those years. They had an opening, uh, the final four and the coaches convention was in Salt Lake City. And, uh, through uh, correspondence, uh, I flew in from Salt Lake to LA to interview. Um, it's kind of ironic that uh, I'm telling you this part of it. I, I show up in the airport. Get my uh, come out of the terminal, and Jack McKinney, of all people, is there to pick me up. As we had talked, I told him I was coming in, and he drives me to LMU for the interview. Uh, I do the interview, and uh, I don't get the job. So I go back, and I'm coaching LaSalle, and then, as you know, I, I wind up with the Lakers. Uh, the next time around, I, I've gotten fired from the Lakers. I went to the Chicago Bulls coach then for a year, got fired from the Bulls. And I'm back in L.A. like 1984 or whatever, and I'm out of work, and, and the job opens up, so I apply, and I interview and don't get the job. And in fact, my very good friend, Jim Lynham, 
St. Joe grad, uh, played for Jack Ramsey, uh, etc. He gets the job. So Jim Lynham, uh, who is my good friend, has the job in whenever he accepts, I guess, in March, April, May, probably early May. And Lynham's a Philly guy too, right? Lynham's a Philly guy. Lynham's a St. Joe guy. Lynham and I played on the same team at St. Joseph's being coached by Jack Ramsey, head coach, and Jack McKinney, assistant coach. Wow. That's how all that comes together. So uh, Lynham's the head coach, and in the meantime, I'm trying to get a job anywhere, and I get a I get an offer uh, back east in the Philadelphia area at your Sinus College. Uh, it's a Division two or three. It's not Division one. I think it's Division three. And they want me to be a full-time English instructor and their basketball coach. So uh, I go, and they make the offer, and they say, okay, uh, take some time, but let us know by the end of July. So this is like the end of June. They say, you know, we'll give you a month to figure it out if you want to do this. So mid to late July, uh, I get a call from Jim Lynham, and he says, Paul, I just want you to know that I took a job right now with the Sixers with Matty Gukas. Now, Gukas is another St. Joe guy who <laughs> played with us, and Gukas got the head job with the Sixers, and he got Lynham to come to be his assistant. So Lynham's given me that information. So at that moment, nobody knows. I mean, other than he told LMU, told, uh, you know, the AD or the president or whatever that he was leaving. So he's, he's trying to help me because he knew that I tried to get the job months before. So I said, okay, thanks, Jim. So uh, we hang up and I call LMU and I say, you know, I, you know, I hear the job is open and they were like, how did you know? <laughs> <laughs> so I said, okay, so here's what's going on with me. I said, like, I'm really interested. I would really like uh, to coach uh, the Lions. But I have to make a decision in two days because July was coming to an end. So I said, I know you might think I'm, I'm pressuring you or hustling you, but I'm not. I said, if two days comes and goes and – you don't make me an offer. I have to take this other job. I will take this other job. So sure enough, uh, at the end of the second day, I went for an interview again, and they offered me the job. So that's how all that fit in. I mean, it was, uh, it was very chaotic at the time, but uh, with Jim Lynham's resignation, a St. Joe's graduate, another St. Joe's graduate gets the job, meaning me. So the third time around, I got the job. That's amazing. I mean, it is, you know, you said earlier in our conversation, just kind of like how things work out sometimes. And you were the perfect coach for that team at that time. And, you know, we can, I guess, fast forward to that, that tragic night of March 4th, 1990, when Hank collapsed and died. And I've said so many times on this show and, and in other places, like, I can't think of a person more graceful than you 
to get the team and, and really that whole community through that time that was so hard to understand and, and so tragic and, you know, the team played so inspired after that. But, you know, imagine, like you said, if you had continued with the Lakers or if you hadn't, you know, gotten that job at LMU the third time around, like none of this would have happened the way that it did. So maybe sometimes things just work out for a reason. Yeah, Brian. I mean, uh, I've, I've had, I think I've counted, I've had 20 jobs. Uh, and some of them just stick out, you know, more than others. And the LMU time, I was there five years at that time, uh, in many ways is the highlight of my career because I finally was able to, uh, get a group of players, uh, to run the, the system to run the speed game uh, to perfection. Uh, and yet uh, I would have given it all up uh, if I could have avoided the, the death of Hank Gathers uh, on that day. So uh, the, the mixture of joy and sorrow uh, is forever uh, blended together. So, you know, you've reflected on Magic Johnson, Diana Trossi, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Spend a couple minutes reflecting on Hank because, you know, I was up close with him too. And what an engaging person. And, you know, I think you called him a walking thunderbolt. He, he just, when he walked into a room, he lit up the room unlike many other people I've been around in my life. <laughs> no, you're, you're absolutely right. When he walked in the room, he took over. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Yeah, it's true. And and if you you remember at his uh, memorial and when they unveiled the the statue, I I did uh, give the example of after games, I'd be outside the locker room and I was with my daughter once and she had a crush on Jeff Fryer and she's waiting to see Fryer. She's like fourteen years old, uh, and. Out walks Hank and he walks over, right over to her and says, hi, Julie, who's your favorite player? And she says, you are Hank. I mean, like, <laughs> there was, there was no way around that. I mean, if you didn't say you are Hank, he probably would have bent you in half. I, who knows? Uh, but he just had a way about him that just dominated, uh, wherever he was, you know, whether that was, you know, on a bus going to a game or in the locker room or certainly on the court, uh, he dominated. Uh, and, uh, I, I, I remember some of the practices that he would, he would take over, uh, with his, with his voice and with his mannerisms. Uh, one time we were running the fast break, uh, drill and, the ball got past Jeff Fryer like three straight times and Fryer shot the ball three straight times. And Hank yelled at Fryer and then came over to me and said, Coach, do you see what's going on? Fryer's shooting the ball all the time. I said, yeah, I know, Hank. I said, but we told him to do that. You know, when they pass him the ball, he shoots. He said, oh, as if he didn't know. I mean, like, uh, he knew. He said, oh. I said, but just think about this. Every time he shoots, if he misses, uh, you can get the rebound and score. Yeah. He said, yeah. So we run the drill a couple more times. 
and the ball gets past the fryer, and Hank's running down the middle of the court, and he screams, Fryer, miss, miss. <laughs> his own teammate. Yeah, to his teammate. So he, he realized, I don't mind you shooting the ball, Fryer, but I don't want you to make it because if you miss, I get it. <laughs> so he, he, he meant it, but he, he was such a dominating guy. Like there was, there was nothing that was going to stop him. Uh, not even when we played LSU and, and Shaquille blocked his first five shots. Uh, at a timeout, Hank said, get me the ball. And as we all know, at the end of that LSU game, uh, he had 45 points and 20-some rebounds. So Hank was probably the strongest individual physically and mentally that I've ever coached. Wow. And again, you know, you, you've coached Kareem and Magic and Diana Taurasi, so yep. that's high praise yep. coming from you. That was the thing about it. Hank is, you know, he was six seven, so he was a little bit undersized, but he would go up against Shaq and Stanley Roberts and, and, you know, Larry Johnson and, and some really big players who had more size on him, but he was just fearless. And, you know, for those listening to this who don't know who Hank Gathers was, he led the nation in scoring and rebounding, which has only been done twice in the history of college basketball. He was a spectacular player, but Coach Westhead, when I saw yeah. him next to Bo Kimball, I always thought Bo was the mo- the more gifted player, but Hank wasn't going to let anyone beat him at anything. Correct. Well, you have there's no doubt Hank had much more basketball talent than Hank. I mean, uh, Bo did. Bo had much more talent than than Hank. Uh, and uh, when you you said I can, uh, I praised him and I put him up with Magic and Kareem and Diana Taurasi. I didn't say that he had the talent that they had right. or the basketball ability. I, I said he was the toughest, strongest player. Uh, I mean, Hank, people project to say, well, what would Hank have been if he played in the NBA? I said, well, Hank would never have been a star, but he'd have been a 10-year veteran who got you 12 points and seven rebounds every game. Right. Every game. Yeah. Uh, and uh, just to show you some of his weaknesses, uh, during his junior year, uh, he was invited to an Olympic trials, uh, in Colorado Springs. And they brought in, uh, maybe 30, 40 or more players from all across the country. So he went for three days and, uh, like a lot of other coaches, I flew in just to see him and say, I'm here for you. How are things going? And, you know, a lot of coaches did that. So I fly in on day two, and I'm, I finally get to the gymnasium. I'm walking up the steps, and there's a little lobby area. I walk into the lobby, and all the doors are closed. And out walks three or four young ladies, some college-age girls, who were there for, like, uh, volleyball or something. They, they were in their uniforms, and they're laughing and giggling and the one says to the other as they get close to them and the door they say did you see that shot i can't believe that and they walk by me i open the door and who's right in front of me but hank Gathers. wow they they were laughing at his shot you know like how different it was than these other 40 players who are the best in the world yeah 
And Hank did not make the team that year. And he came back determined that he was going to prove how good he was. Uh, so you, you, you wouldn't want to challenge Hank Gathers. He was going to meet that challenge. Yeah. And that, that whole team was so special. I mean, you know, you said that LMU team was kind of the, the peak of the powers of the system. It was such a hodgepodge. You know, you had Hank and Bo from Philly. You had Jeff Fryer, the surfer from Orange County, Tom Peabody, Per Steamer from Sweden. Uh, Tony Walker was a JC transfer. Terrell Lowry, great yep. basketball player, was a better baseball player, got drafted to play pro baseball. It was just such a collection of guys that if you just, you know, saw them walking on campus, you would have never put them together. But together on the basketball court, they were a symphony that, that made great music. Yeah, there's no question about that, Brian. They, they blended together. They, and unusual even for, for my teams, they accepted and believed in the system, in the speed game. So they marveled how they could outrun teams, how they could break teams down, how they could tire them. Uh, they knew before the game started that somewhere between the opening tip and 40 minutes later, they were going to be playing against a broken team. And, and they enjoyed that. It was like, uh, something to behold. Uh, uh, and they relished in it and they all did their individual task. I mean, uh, nobody got a fast break unless we got the ball out quick. Nobody got a fast break unless Tony Walker and Terrell Lowry raced that ball down at breakneck speed. And certainly nobody won the game if when we shot and missed, here comes Hank Gathers and, and company down the lane to get a second shot and score. What happened in the Alabama game? That was the only time I ever saw a team successfully, with you as the coach, slow down Loyola Marriott. I think it was 62-60 was the final score, and they just basically went four corners for, for most of the game. That was the only time where I saw a team disciplined enough not to kind of fall into the trap of trying to outrun the Lions. Yeah, well, uh, their coach, Wim Sanderson, uh, unlike Steve Fisher, uh, told me a week before, he said, if we play you in the next round, I'm telling you right now, we're not going to run. I will have my team hold the ball. <laughs> so... He was hell-bent uh, on not getting caught in a running game. So we would press. They would get an advantage, let's say a three-on-two, and they would pull it out and set up their offense. So it, we had a difficult time because usually when we press and we give you an advantage, most teams score or try and score like Michigan did, and they were very good at it. So he kind of defied uh, our principles of defending in a way to make you shoot early. He refused to do that. And uh, therefore, we're in a back and forth, you know, game in the 60s. I don't know if you remember. I, I just ran into him a couple of weeks ago here in L.A. But we were up and Alabama had one more shot they had one more possession 
And do you, I don't know if you remember. Do you remember who took the last shot for Alabama? Robert Ory. Robert Ory. Yeah. You, you, Brian, you're on your game. Well, you know, big game Robert didn't make that shot. Right. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> Thank God. Yeah. And I just saw him a couple of weeks ago. He was at Loyola High School uh, where his son was playing against my grandson uh, in football. And we were reflecting on that. And he said, yeah, well, that's one of the few that I missed, Coach. Exactly. No, I remember that well because – after that, I don't think he missed many at, at all. But, uh, yeah, they had a very talented team. And, frankly, they were very athletic, too. So they could have been baited into running with Loyola. Sure. But, you sure. know, if their coach was, you know, hell-bent on saying, all right, we're taking the air out of the ball, then they listened to their coach. And, and you know, they came pretty close. I, I said to this day, Coach, the only team that could have beaten – you guys that year was the team that did. And that was UNLV. They were really, really talented. Uh, I mean, would they have four first round picks in their starting lineup? Yeah. And I mean, just in- incredible. But, um, you know, I-, I think all of us have wondered if Hank had been in the lineup that day, maybe things would have been differently. We had a little glimpse of that. It was interesting. The 1990 season book ended with UNLV and UNLV. So the first game at Thomas and Mac, when you guys are running them off the court and, a bomb threat gets called in. They slow down the game and then, you know, UNLV comes and, and wins the game. But I, I thought, you know, 1990, that could have been the year of, of Loyola Marymount if UNLV had lost to Ball State. Remember, Ball State almost beat them in the round before. Yeah. yeah and, and our players, we played before that game. Our players are watching the end of that game, hoping that, uh, Ball State loses. Right. They said, we want to play UNLV. Interesting. We want Ball State to lose. Well, if I could change time, I think we'd be better off playing Ball State. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, again, Larry Johnson, Stacey Augman, uh, Greg Anthony, Anderson Hunt. I mean, they had some really good players. Jerry Tarkanian obviously coached that team, but... uh that was a special season. Uh, did you did you say Tracy uh, Tracy Aug- Stacy Augman? Stacy Augman, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I coached Stacy later uh, in my career uh, in Orlando, so he turned out to be a good guy. But I did, I didn't like him at that. time. <laughs> no, that was it. Was a magical season. Uh, you know, again, you you would trade it all to have Hank back. But uh, so then you leave. Well, wait. All right, before we we have you leaving to go to Denver. I got to ask you, you're, and this would be like unheard of today. While you're coaching Loyola Marymount, you're also teaching Shakespeare at Loyola Marymount. Well, that, I, I wasn't teaching Shakespeare, but I, I did, I, I taught a writing class. And in fact, uh, I taught a writing class uh, to the sociology majors. I, I They actually were upper, upper level uh, juniors and seniors in this class. And I was teaching them writing skills. Uh, uh, I, I could barely spell sociology, so I didn't teach them anything about <laughs> their, their expertise. But uh, I was sent in by the sociology sociology department to kind of, you know, give them a format, give them a, a way of writing papers and, and delivering uh, their ideas. So, uh, yeah, I was in. I taught there for a couple of years uh, and during that season. 
it just, it, I thought it was so cool because, you know, first of all, the team was doing so well. And if you're in a coach Westhead class, that's cool in and of itself. But it also says about your diverse background and that you're so much more than just a basketball coach and that you've had an interest in Shakespeare and that you've been a scholar. And I just thought that was a really neat part of, of what makes you unique. So now LMU loses in the grade eight and the Denver Nuggets come calling. And to me, that's one of those crossroads again. It's, I totally get why you want to go to the NBA and run the system. But I also think, and I go, you, you know, maybe Loyola Marymount could have been Gonzaga before Gonzaga was Gonzaga. Like you could have stayed at LMU maybe for 20, 25 years and built it into right. what Mark Few has built Gonzaga into. And, you know, it's one of those great what ifs. But what was your reasoning other than just the allure of the NBA? I'm sure it was more money and, and going to Denver. Yeah. I, I, Brian, it was a very difficult decision. Uh, and, uh, before I make that jump to Denver, uh, I did, uh, I did get a call from Dale Brown from LSU. And, uh, he said to me, he said, coach, if you stay in the college game and specifically, I guess he meant LMU. He said, if you stay, he said, you're about to change the way basketball is going to be played throughout the country. Hmm. He said, it, it, it'll change. Well, uh, the lure of one more shot at a head position in the NBA was just, you know, driving me to Denver. Uh, I said, I, I had been in the NBA before. I got fired from the Lakers, I got fired from the Bulls. Uh, I'm not going to have many offers. You know, this is not going to come around in another year or two and say, hey, why don't you coach our team? So Denver needed me, and I needed Denver. So uh, I ultimately made that decision to try the NBA one more time. Well, and by the way, Hank had passed. Bo was graduating. Jeff Fryer was graduating. I mean, you were losing – a good portion of that team. So in a lot of ways at Loyola Marymount, you would have been rebuilding. Yeah. Yeah. To be honest, O'Brien, I I wasn't that clever. I I, I wasn't that calculating. I really didn't, you know, analyze like, well, we're not going to be as good as we were. I mean, I guess that was blatantly obvious, but uh, I mean, I knew what I was giving up. I knew that I had convinced my team to play this way, the speed game. And I knew from my past experience that that is not easy to come by. I mean, they were going to play that way without bow. It didn't matter. It was ingrained in the way they thought basketball was to be performed. So I knew I had that. And it's not, that wasn't easy to give up. But the lure of, trying to show that I can coach in the NBA just was a little stronger. Yeah. And it, again, it makes sense. So now you get to Denver and you know, you had a decent collection of players on that team. Didn't uh, Chris Jackson, who later became Mahmoud Abdul-Rauf, was he on that team? Yes, he was. He was a rookie. Okay. And then Dikembe, was he there yet? Uh, Dikembe came my second year. 
Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. you have two decent cornerstone players, but what always struck me from afar, and certainly I wasn't in it, it, it seemed like getting NBA players to play fast for 82 games was a challenge. Would that be a, a correct observation? You're absolutely right. Uh, uh, but I, I'll even expand it more. Getting any team to play fast for 40 minutes in a 30-game season or an 82-game season is really uh, stretching. Uh, and upon reflection, now that I've done it all, uh, I would say uh, I would not advise anyone who has an NBA job or a new college Division One job to run my system because you're probably going to get fired. Uh, and I say that because you're probably not going to get the players to do it. Because if, you, if they don't do it, if they do it like halfway or three quarters, you look bad. Uh, so you, they either have to buy in or it fails. And that's why I reflect back the LMU players, they bought in. And my Denver players, they, they give them credit, they tried. You know, I had a, a mixture of players. Uh, uh, I had some seasoned veterans. I had Walter Davis from North Carolina. Oh, yeah. I had Orlando Woolrich from Notre Dame, who had, they were very seasoned veterans. They really, they really wanted to do it. But physically, when you're 35 going, you know, you're, and your body's beginning to break down, it's, it's really hard. I mean, just to give you a Walt Davis example, we got him on the trade and the first day he came in, he said, uh, hi coach, I'm Walter Davis. He said, what a gentleman he was. And I said, yeah, Walter. He said, well, coach, uh, I'm either, going to be able to get out there and practice all the time with you and I see how fast you're playing or I'm going to be able to play the games he said but I can't do both <laughs> I can't practice right. and play he said my, my body my legs are just going to break down so I said okay Walter I made a decision you're going to stand next to me all the practice <laughs> So, I mean, uh, we had that dilemma. We just had players who, many of them willing, but their bodies were just too broken down to, to do it. And uh, although, you know, it's kind of interesting, it, 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 the experiment didn't work. And, you know, ultimately I get fired. But even in that first year, we averaged like 119.8, or let's just round up and say 120 points a game. I don't think anyone has done that since uh, in the NBA. Average 120 points a game. Yeah. So uh, it, it didn't work, you know, and, and work in the NBA as in most, you know, sports teams. Work means did you win more than you lost? Did you win uh, some kind of championship or first place? And we did not. So uh, the system couldn't sustain itself. Well, but kudos to you for trying it, right? Because when it did work, it was amazing to watch. And, you know, you, you believed in in what you were doing. And yes. But you're right. Like I, I look to when you went to the women's game. 
So you went to the Phoenix Mercury, and look, if you're just measuring it by wins and losses, you won a title with the Mercury in 2007, and, and Diana Trossi was part of that team. You tried it at Oregon. It didn't work there. So it is really about the buy-in of the players, and if they don't commit to that full-time, then I guess it doesn't work. Yeah, uh, I mean, upon reflection, it's something that is very hard, and, and you have to recognize that going in. That's why I would say I, I wouldn't give the, the blueprints of what I do to a, a young aspiring coach and say, hey, uh, this will get you a great career. It probably will get you uh, in another business in about two years. <laughs> but, but, but I will say this, and, and when you bring up the Phoenix Mercury, there's another example like LMU of a team that once I gave them the system and, and incidentally, when I flew in there to accept the job and they had a press conference, Diana Tarasi met me at the airport. Wow. And came to the press conference with me. Now, uh, that's the only time I got a job and one of the players met me. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. So, and she said to me on this ride in, she said, coach, treat us like the guys. So whatever you did with your teams to make them fast and play hard, do everything the same to us. So I said, okay. So, this team, uh, the Phoenix Mercury, they bought in. They were a group of professional women who said, this is what you want. This is what we're going to do. Uh, and, and, of course, Tarasi led the way. But uh, So it can happen. Uh, and I guess the beauty of the system is it doesn't happen every year in every team. It, it happens occasionally. And it certainly happened with the Mercury uh, and Diana Taurasi, and it certainly happened with LMU with Hank and Bo. When you look at the women's game now, I mean, for a long time, it was UConn and everyone else. Now, you know, teams like Oregon, South Carolina, Notre Dame, I see a lot of expansion in the women's game, and, and I interviewed Kathy Engelbert, the new president and commissioner of the WNBA a few months ago in Chicago, and I just really see a lot of progression in the college and pro women's game. Are you paying any attention to that? Yeah, yeah, I follow the women's game. Uh, I, I, you know, after coaching the Mercury and coaching uh, the the Oregon uh, women for five years, uh, I like the women's game. I, I pay attention to it, and I would agree with you that uh, it's beginning to spread out is beginning to grow uh, a dozen years ago when I was in the thick of my Oregon experience with the with the women's team there was only a handful of very very talented players coming out of high school a handful maybe six to uh, ten a year and the reason one of the reasons why UConn dominated is of the ten great high school players, they'd get four or five of them every year. So, hello, no wonder they could win over and over again because there weren't enough teams that had that level of player. Well, now that has changed. 
Uh, I mean, uh, Gino does a great job there, and he's still doing a great job, and he still gets very good players. But others are getting them now, as you in- indicated, South Carolina, Notre Dame, certainly Oregon. Uh, so uh, the game has improved uh, on the women's side. Did you have a chance to watch any of Sabrina's games this year? Yeah, I did. I, I mean, I saw a handful of them. Uh, uh, she She's just one of those special players. And it's interesting. Uh, she's probably more like Magic and Diana Taurasi in that she might not have been the perfect fast break player for me because she's so good at so many things. Right. Uh, I mean, she goes fast when she when she sees the need, and she slows down when she sees the need. Well, see, Tony Walker or uh, Kelly Miller, my Phoenix point guard, they would never do that. They'd go fast every time. Interesting. Uh, but so Sabrina is in that, you know, what you want to call specialty category of the Magics and the Tarasis. Yeah. When you were at Oregon, Chip Kelly's playing up-tempo – with the football team. Did you guys ever get together and compare notes? We did. In fact, uh, uh, I take a a lot of pride in that. uh, During my second year, which was, we we started together. Chip became the new head coach. He wasn't assistant there. The new head coach, the year I arrived. So we kind of went through year one, two, three together. Uh, During his, uh, after his second year, he invited me, in August to come in and speak about my fast break and how I do it, good and the bad of it, to his team. So I'm in an auditorium with, you know, 95 players, and I give them my, you know, my my pitch. Uh, many of the things maybe we've already talked about. And he, in his own way, took some of my ideas and expanded them into uh, his football world. And there was nothing better than a Chip Kelly, Oregon team during those years. I mean, it was a, a sight to behold. It was spectacular. Uh, they played so quick, so fast, so efficient. They, uh, they would just break teams down. Uh, you see them struggling to, to perform. And, and as you probably remember, that was the start of teams. Uh, having players fake injuries just to stop the clock. Uh, anything to get out of that speed game that, that Kelly uh, became an expert at. Yeah, I mean, that Oregon football team reminded me a lot of your Loyola Marymount basketball team, just kind of the peak of the powers playing fast. Yeah, I, I agree. And, and and you know, Chip's now at UCLA, and, you know, I, I, I've stayed in touch with him, and, and I follow them as best I can. Uh, and maybe what he's finding in his own world, and he did a lot of things different than me, but maybe what he's finding is that his system, like my fast break, isn't automatic. That you get teams that you get the right players and they buy in. And then you have teams that you don't have the right players and maybe all of them don't buy in. And you don't win. Yeah. That's, I mean, like you said, that's the hard thing about your system. It, a lot of it is based on effort, right? And, and commitment and willingness to buy in. And if you don't, then probably doesn't work. 
No. And then there's a players only meeting. <laughs> and they say, hey, we had enough of this guy. Yeah. Well, that's interesting that you guys still stay in touch. All right. So you have a new book coming out, Speed of the Game. It's out in November. What made you want to write a book? Well, I've been kicking this around for years, uh, Brian. I, I, I did some writing way back in the mid-80s after uh, I left the Lakers and I had a little free time in between jobs. And then uh, I picked it back up uh, in the year 2000 to 2002 when I was coaching in uh, Japan. I, I coached uh, Panasonic for two years in Japan. So uh, I just had a lot of free time because my wife and I were the only people who spoke English in this small town and uh, that we were outside of Osaka, Japan. And then uh, about three years ago, I picked it back up again because uh, I was uh, free and not coaching. So I put it all together and finally completed it. And I found a publisher at the University of Nebraska Press that uh, willingly did it for me. So it's going to be a reality. It's going to come out in November. Well, congratulations. That's, Thanks, Brian. Yeah, it, yeah, I mean, you've had such an amazing uh, life and experiences. When you look back, I mean, now you're going to have written a book. You, you've shared with us during this conversation, you know, many of the highlights of your career. When it's all said and done, what's the legacy that you want to leave or how do you want to be remembered or do you even care? Like I ask that question to people all the time and some of them are like, well, I don't care how people remember me. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to sound glib. It's it's like I remember Charles Barkley many years ago. He said something that people thought was a little bit off and they said, hey, Charles, you know, uh, you're a role model. He said, no, no, I, I'm not a role model. I never asked to become a role model. I, 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 but Charles is a role model, and Charles does a great job uh, in his commentary, but he, I don't think he wants to be thrust upon him. So I'm not really trying to do anything for a, a legacy. I'm more hopeful that, you know, the style of play that I – found doesn't get lost and a lot of the people that I interacted with over the years uh, from high school through college through professional ranks you know uh, some of my comments you know will be remembered and it's interesting if you talk about legacy of all the teams that I've coached uh, no one has ever invited me back officially although I LMU has done it you know just recently with the Hank Gathers, but I mean, players inviting you back, not, not the institution. Uh, the only group of players that invited me back over the 50 years of coaching was my high school team back at Cheltenham High in, in the Philadelphia area. Uh, they invited back, hey coach, you like you to come back? We're going to meet at Chuck, this is Chuck Sheckman's house, we're going to meet at his house, we're going to, so I go back. And it's about eight to ten players who I coached 40-plus years ago. And we have uh, beer and hoagies and cheesesteaks. And they sit around, they tell stories about me. And I look at them like, this wasn't me. But they acted like I was the hardest, toughest, meanest guy they, they ever experienced. 
I said, no, that's not me. <laughs> they said, oh, yes, it was. Uh, but I, the pride that I had that night that they thought enough to bring me back to just sit around and talk, uh, that's the kind of legacy you like to have. Yeah, absolutely. And I know – you know, there's been a few get-togethers with that Loyola Marymount team, and that you've gotten together with them, players yeah. only, and and you know you and a few of the coaches. And and I say this all the time. I've been around Dream Team One. I used to work for the Blazers. I've been around a lot of teams. I don't know that I've ever seen a team bond closer and, and stronger than that Loyola Marymount team. It was just unlike anything I've ever seen in my career. I agree, Brian. Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, the Cheltenham High team, because of my maybe just starting out, uh, the, the Lakers and the Mercury because of winning a championship. But uh, if I had to pick a team, uh, the LMU team, uh, in many ways was the highlight of my coaching because uh, we blended together and uh, – Nothing was going to stop us, not even a bomb scare. Yeah. Well, Coach, that is 90 minutes of gold that you just gave me. And, you know, I I, I have always looked at you and held you in the highest of esteem. Um, you know, you were my coach when I was in college and, and a part of that team, and you always made me and Keith Foreman, who says hello, by the way, yeah, uh, feel so yeah. special and and a part of that team. We were on the plane trips with you and the bus rides with you, and you know we didn't play, but we we were around you guys, and you made us feel you know part of the team. And like I said earlier, there was tragedy that year with with Hank's passing, and there's not anyone I can think of who would have handled it more gracefully than you did. So, just such respect for you and all your achievements and. Hey, I'll invite you to anything anytime you want. I, I would love to, you know, have more conversations with you. And I'm glad that, uh, this conversation is going to live on forever. So I, I did one of these with David Stern, uh, in 2016 and he was a good friend of mine. And, you know, I think it's great that people can really get to know who you were and, and about your career. But I will also invite people to watch the Guru of Go, ESPN 30 for 30 documentary. And of course, when Coach Westhead's new book, Speed of the Game, comes out in November, go get that as well. Coach Westhead, stay safe during this pandemic, and thank you so much. I wish we could have done this in person, but this was Thanks. fantastic. Thanks, Brian. I appreciate it. You're listening to Sports much. Business Radio. We'll be right back. If you're working from home now like I am, you still need to look professional. Many of us are doing Zoom conferences or FaceTime calls with business associates. That's why I turn to my mizzen and main dress shirts. I need to look good from the waist up, but I also want to be comfortable. Mizzen and main is like athletic wear disguised as a dress shirt, making them great for comfort while working from home. It's a shirt that has worked for thousands of customers, including hundreds of professional athletes like JJ Watt and Phil Mickelson. Head on over to mizzenandmain.com and use promo code SBR to get $10 off your dress shirt. That's mizzenandmain.com code SBR. Guess what? Mizzen and Main also makes super comfortable wrinkle-free pants and shorts, so you can check those out as well. Head on over to mizzenandmain.com. Use promo code SBR to get $10 off your next purchase. That's mizzenandmain.com, code SBR. Well, that's it for this edition of Sports Business Radio. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks to our show staff, Brian Griggs and Josh Blank. Thanks to our friends from Boingo Wireless 
CBDMD, and Mizzen in Maine. For Brian Griggs, I'm Brian Berger. Have a great week, and we'll talk to you soon right here on Sports Business Radio. This and every SBR podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and your favorite listening app. Follow Sports Business Radio on Facebook, Twitter at SB Radio, Instagram at Sports Business Radio, and online at sportsbusinessradio.com. Sports Business Radio is produced by Brian Griggs and Griggs Productions. GriggsProductions.com.